Uh, we've been studying through the book of Acts, and we're today in Acts 11. And in Acts 11, what we're going to do, what, what the good thing about today is that in Acts 11, we will be able to review uh, what happened last week, which is the gospel going to the Gentiles through the conversion of Cornelius and his household. But the great thing about, as we begin Acts 11, is that Peter will now recount or retell the whole story of how it happened instead of just Luke. Remember in Acts 10, it was Luke telling the story of the gospel going to the Gentiles. Now it will be actually Peter retelling the story and a testimony of what had happened, but the gospel going to the Gentiles. The thing is, is who is Peter going to be telling this to? And that's very interesting. So as we begin, remember last week we began to see how the Holy Spirit and the power of the gospel bridged over through the Samaritans to the Gentiles through the witness of Peter. And you remember how Peter, how he had to have a, what we call a come to with the Holy Spirit in the gospel, an honest moment where God had to say to him, through the vision, do not call common what I have made clean, meaning not food, but people. And we remember in Acts chapter 10, verses, verse 43, is the main theme of our sermon, our time last week, which was, to him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. And what had happened was, as he was speaking, the Holy Spirit fell on all those listening. So, uh, remember the Jews, they received the, the Spirit the same way in that they knew of the law of God. They knew of the Old Testament, the traditions, but they didn't know what they pointed to. So they needed the real significant truth, which was Jesus Christ. And then finally realizing everything culminated in the gospel. Now the Gentiles realizing, I do good things, I don't say certain words, perhaps I avoid certain traditions... And I actually am doing things, but I don't know why I'm doing them. They finally realize as a Gentile, I'm doing all these things because of what Jesus Christ has done for me. And so they begin to understand the gospel in a different way. The gospel is like a diamond. It's got many facets to it, many faces. And it can be viewed in so many ways. But the central truth of the diamond is Jesus. And so the gospel is Jesus Christ. And so, as we see here, the Gentiles receiving the Holy Spirit, they then are baptized. And Peter and all those Jews circumcised, they say, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? So now we're in Acts 11. So as we read, we'll look at it a little bit more in depth, and then I'll comment. So in Acts 11, beginning in verse 1. Now, the apostles and... The brothers who were there throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. So we'll stop right there for the first three verses. So the apostles and the brothers throughout all Judea heard what happened. So this isn't something that uh, was just a common occurrence. This is, was something unnatural. And then what happens is the church in Jerusalem, they, Peter goes up there on his own accord. So he goes to Jerusalem because he wants to go there. 
and to tell about and testify about what God had done. But they criticized him because of one thing. You ate with people whose foreskin was still there and whose traditions they didn't approve of. And the fact is you ate with uncircumcised men. And so uh, as they began to question him, in verse 4, Peter says, He began to explain to them in order. I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, something like a great sheet descending, being let down from heaven by its four corners. And it came down to me. Looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts of prey, and reptiles and birds of the air, and I heard a voice saying to me, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, By no means, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. And remember, Jesus said, It's not what goes in your mouth that is proven clean. It's what comes out of your mouth, from out of the heart the mouth speaks. Uh, And I'll comment in a minute on that. So, he says, I've never eaten anything common or clean. Common or clean. But the voice answered a second time from heaven, What God has made clean, do not call common. And this happened three times, and all was drawn up again into heaven. And behold, at that very moment, three men arrived at the house in which we were sent to me from Caesarea. And the Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. And these six brothers also accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. And he told us how he had seen the angel stand in his house and say, Send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter, and he will declare to you a message by which you will be saved. You and all your household. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them, just as on us at the beginning. In the 16, I remember the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Now, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, meaning they're not the second baptism where you receive the gifts. Everything has been accorded to you for life and godliness, as Second Peter says in chapter 1, that... Everything has been accorded to you through the Holy Spirit's power, meaning the first baptism, the only baptism you received, which was the internal washing of your heart with the Spirit of God's power. And how that happens is the heart has been washed clean so that you can repent and understand the gospel message. That's what the, the baptism... Now, the second physical baptism that we do, by immersion, by the way... After receiving the Holy Spirit and receiving salvation, we do that not so much as to receive salvation, receive the gifts. We do that as a confirmation sign that we are part of, I'm identifying with Jesus, and I'm identifying with His church. So I'll say that again. You're identifying with Jesus Christ by baptism, by the physical immersion into water. You're identifying with Jesus, and your identification is with the body of Christ. That's why when you came to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, you both, you identified with Christ by baptism, and you identified with His people. That's why in the 1040 windows, we call the 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 area, the least evangelized area in the world, where many pastors will say, it's time to, I believe you're a Christian, I believe that you love Jesus, now prove it to everybody here. By going and having a public baptism. Why is that significant in that area of the world? Because for somebody to say, I really truly believe Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior, I'm willing to actually do the most uh, 
prolific act, profound act, by publicly being baptized in a river where anybody who comes by could possibly see me and identify me as a Christian and then with his people. And that's the purpose of baptism, a water baptism. The, 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 the spiritual baptism that Peter was talking about here was that the washing of the heart by the Spirit. So he says here in verse 17, If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? So Peter realized and he knew that I cannot stand in God's way because obviously he has extended the gospel to the Gentiles. And the same scenario, the same scene and situation that happened to us at the beginning as Jewish circumcised individuals of the Jewish party is happening now to the Gentiles. And then it says in 18, when they heard these things, they fell silent. The Jewish council, the church in Jerusalem, all those of the circumcised party who thought they were still better than Gentiles, even with the gospel, they fell silent. They glorified God saying, then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. And so uh, Peter goes to Jerusalem on his own accord and the interrogation or the, uh, the questioning uh, it awaits him by the circumcision party because of the Jewish tradition and law that you just didn't eat with uncircumcised individuals, namely Gentiles. And so the desire should be for, for us as believers is that we continue like Peter did to have a divine vision, command, uh, preparation, peace, and action. And so here what we're seeing is from Acts 15.9, later in Acts, but in Acts 15.9, you begin to see the confirmation of why Peter actually really believed and confirmed all these things. And in Acts 15.9, in the front of the same Jewish council, it says, And he made no distinction between us, me and the Holy Spirit. And God who knows the heart will witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them having cleansed their hearts by faith. And that was really the crux of the matter, is that Peter knew that the Holy Spirit had fallen on the Gentiles, but what was connecting uh, what they were doing, uh, meaning their good works, with the gospel was their faith in Christ. Faith in what God had done for them. Faith in what God had done for them through Christ, the perfect work. And so as we saw here when Peter reported in the church, it's not that the church of Jerusalem didn't believe in God's power. They just didn't think that the faith could extend even to the Gentiles. To those people. And that's how they referred to them, as those people over there. And the idea that we need to get into our heads and beat into our brains and our hearts is that God desires to extend faith to every tribe, tongue, and nation. One thing that we need to do personally is ask God to extend our faith even greater, to grow our faith, to help us grow into the likeness of Jesus Christ more as we serve Him. So, Peter says, I'm not going to stand in God's way. And in verse 18, the church of Jerusalem says, well, let's glorify God because the, to the Gentiles, God has granted repentance. He has allowed these uncircumcised individuals to come to faith in Christ. So 
What we're now going to look at today more in depth in the last part of chapter 11 is how the gospel mission to the Gentiles, what it actually did to certain individuals and how it extended further into the Gentile nations. So let's look at the church in Antioch because this is something that uh, we need to identify with here and truths that we'll see. In verse 19, now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. Okay, so remember Stephen, he testifies to the grace of God and to the gospel through the Old Testament, a very long sermon of almost 60 verses, and he gets stoned. At the hands and permission of Saul. And those who are scattered. So you remember in Acts 8 1, if you go back, you read, and Saul approved his execution and arose on the day of great persecution against the church, and they're all scattered, Judea and Samaria. And remember, Philip goes north to Samaria, to Shechem, the city, and others are scattered. And here's how far they go. And it says in verse 19, Stephen, uh, the because of the persecution that arose, those who were scattered traveled as far as Phoenicia. That would be as far as Lebanon, modern-day Lebanon today, and Cyprus and Antioch, and others as far as southwest on the west side of Egypt. So the gospel had spread pretty far, but they didn't talk to Gentiles. They only talked to Jews. So they probably went to synagogues, but they still only talked to Jews. Well, look at verse 20. But... There were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who, on coming to Antioch, spoke to the Hellenists, those are Greek-speaking non-Jews, and spoke to the Hellenists, also preaching the Lord Jesus Christ. So there's what they preached. They preached the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, One thing that you need to recognize, at least, is that, one, we preach the Lordship of Jesus Christ, God having... Uh, Christ having lordship over every single aspect of our lives. But the thing that you remember here is that during this time, if you didn't say Caesar is Lord, who were you saying is Lord? Somebody other than Caesar. So that was what? Treason by death. And so to not say Caesar is Lord, but to say Jesus is Lord was total disrespect and treason. So the idea here in the Roman Empire that we see contextually is that you did not want to say Jesus is Lord and Caesar wasn't. But the, still, the idea remained that you preach the gospel and you receive the gospel, you receive Jesus as Lord. You don't receive Jesus as teacher. You don't receive Jesus as good man. You don't receive Jesus as secondary to, or equal to others. You receive Jesus Christ as Lord of your life. And that means all aspects. Well, look at 21. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. And the report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. So many people were responding to the gospel. They were coming to faith in Christ. They were coming to understand the message of of Jesus. They were repenting of sins. They were turning. And so the evangelists who went there, the men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who went to Antioch, they preached the gospel and they were having many people come to know Christ. So they had a lot of converts. Well, the reports spread through Judea. God is working amongst those people. You, you get those reports often. 
about places in the world where, okay, God is working in that nation. You can hear about China, how the gospel is spreading amongst the house churches. God is working. What are they needing over there in China? They're needing discipleship. They're needing training. They're needing something to to pull people together into fellowships to help spread the gospel through local churches, through binding together unity in the body. And so in 22, the report of this came to Jerusalem to the ears of the church, and they send Barnabas. Why do they send Barnabas? Do you remember in Acts chapter 5 or 4, you remember Barnabas is mentioned earlier. It says in 36, Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So Barnabas, whose nickname was son of encouragement, you see him again here. He's a native of Cyprus. So I can imagine that the church of Jerusalem thought this is an individual who knows the context, who knows the people, who knows who's sharing the gospel, who's receiving the gospel, who is native to that area, who would be able to go and speak the word of encouragement. And what does it say in 23? When he came, he saw the grace of God. So it's the grace of God that people are coming to repentance. It's the grace of God that people are knowing Jesus more. And he saw the grace of God. He was glad and he exhorted them all to do what? To one purpose, to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For 24, he was a good man full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas knows and understands that the gospel mission to the Gentiles was initiated by courage. Why? Because... Here's what happened. The people who were scattered because of the persecution went as far as Lebanon, as far as southeast of Judea. Uh, they only spoke to Jews. And so many came to know the Lord in Cyprus and Cyrene. So it's like these Jews who were scattered from Jerusalem went to Cyprus and Cyrene, shared the gospel. And the people were in Cyprus and Cyrene who didn't have the baggage that was in Jerusalem, they probably thought, you know what? The gospel is for all people. Why would I not speak the gospel to these people here in Antioch? And so some men say, let's just go share the gospel. And then they begin to respond to the message. So some great courage in that, knowing that there are some traditions that they had to fight against. In other words, I can't speak to uncircumcised individuals. But they began to realize through courage of the gospel that let's take the gospel to these just God-fears, but more or less just non-Jews who spoke Greek. So, and just looking at this city of Antioch as well, we need to know and understand contextually, this is a city that uh, was founded by uh, one of uh, Alexander the Great's, one of his generals, uh, who named after his father Antiochus, who was Seleucus Nicanor. So Nicator, he founded this city, but he wanted to found this city, uh, establish the city based on equal citizenship. So because of that, you had a lot of people who were Chinese, who were Indian, who were Persian, who were Greek, who were uh, Jews, who were barbarians, who were slaves. It was very much a cosmopolitan area, very much a cosmopolitan city. Antioch was a place that had more or less half a million people, but they were from all walks of life, compacted together. 
And so the, uh, the, the passageway of ideas, of goods and services, uh, you had just a plethora of options and choices. So having distinctions, whether you're a Jew or a Greek or whether you're male or you're female or whether you're uh, Persian or Indian, it didn't really matter. And they weren't so magnified because you didn't have just Persians living in Antioch. You had all kinds of people living in Antioch, which made it just a great and strategic place for church planting, and it made it a great and strategic place for sending people back to their home places where they could take the gospel. So by God's providence on the Holy Spirit, the courage of the men from Cyprus and Cyrene to take the gospel to Antioch was no accident, but there was a sense of obedience that we saw. And so we see here Barnabas encouraging and confirming the work of the gospel mission. And now we're seeing the gospel mission to the Gentiles strengthened. Look at verse 25. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for who? Saul. He goes to look for Saul. So now we see Saul again. The last time we saw Saul, he kind of made a, a, a big bagunza of everything. And that was back in chapter 9, verse... Chapter nine or chapter nine, verse thirty, and he really did make a mess, and they sent him off. So we haven't heard from Saul for seven to eight years. For about seven to eight years, we haven't heard from Saul. That's the time period between the end of chapter nine, almost, and all the way to now. And so we're seeing here Barnabas go and look for Saul. Remember, Barnabas stood up for Saul. He's the one who said, no, I know he wants to slice all of you up and kill you. But the idea still is he's a Christian. He's converted. He knows the gospel. He, he's not the same way. He's, he's not. Yeah, right, we will believe you, but we'll believe Barnabas. So Barnabas, he sticks up for Saul. He proves to them that he is a true believer. He knows the gospel. But we're still going to ship him off and get him out of here anyway. But he goes and looks for him. Why does he do that? Because Barnabas knows that Paul, Saul's calling was to the Gentiles. His calling was to the Gentiles. And in Antioch, these are Gentiles. And Saul, after seven, eight years, I think you're ready. So he goes and looks for him in, Tar- in Tarsus. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. And for a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Okay, so let's stop there. So he goes and gets Saul, and they go back to Antioch, and they teach for a whole year, and that's the strengthening of the church. So just imagine, you've got, just like in Acts 2, when the Holy Spirit had fallen on the Jews, it was a whole bunch of brand new believers. They needed to be strengthened and encouraged. They needed to be tested. They needed to be discipled. They needed to be trained. They needed to be equipped. They needed to be prepared for gospel mission in Jerusalem and beyond that. Now what we're seeing in the Gentile mission uh, going forward, the gospel and the Holy Spirit had fallen in uh, Caesarea and now is in Antioch continuing on and they need to be strengthened. All these new believers need to be pulled together. So you ask yourself, why didn't the men of Cyrene and Cyprus do this work? Well, we can sum in, in, in Ephesians, Paul talks a lot about different gifts varying to different individuals in the body. And Paul talks about the same thing in Corinthians. And that not all of us are evangelists. We need to share the gospel. But not all of us have the gift of being able to sit down with somebody 
and really just pull them in, reel them in, cast the net, and them just you know come to know Jesus Christ. Others have the gift more of training, leadership, development, teaching, and instruction, and pulling these new believers together and strengthening them. And those who are evangelists really just have more the gift of reeling people in and attracting them to the gospel message. So we all have gifts differing each according to our ability based on the grace of God. And so because of that, we're seeing Barnabas come in, faithfully coming in, exhorting them by the Holy Spirit, and exhorting them to remain faithful with steadfast purpose. But with the aid of Paul, Paul coming in and rallying them all together into one local body. And for a whole year they teach them. So that should speak to us two different things. One is, it doesn't matter uh, what gift you have. What matters is how you faithfully use that for God's glory and serving Him for His purpose. And going back to your calling, it all goes back to your calling. What are you called to do? Stay with that calling. There are many of us who like to do dabble in different things, and we all can do them pretty good. But if we stayed with our calling, we would do all of that calling very well, and what we what we would do with our calling. And so for me, it's teaching God's Word. It's teaching God's Word, uh, strategically binding together the leaders, doing leadership training, and that kind of thing for the purpose of building and strengthening the church and planting other churches. But you will not find me in the kitchen. Uh, You will not find me there doing hospitality. And I'm not saying that's lower. What I'm saying is that's just as important. I just am horrible at it. Uh, You will not find me organizing certain uh, outreach events. Why? Because I'm horrible at that kind of thing. I'm just horrible. I'm not gifted. I've tried it before and I've done horrible. You'll find my wife not teaching and exhorting and doing a lot of leadership training. One, she's not called to do that. That's the first thing. But two, she says, I'm not good at that. She's better at administration. Moving forward with the church and loving people through attractional ministries and things like Things that I'm not good at. And there are others who are gifted in different ways. Sitting down with somebody... For me, I can share the gospel all day long for some reason with, by God's grace, with an individual and faithfully do that. But the results are not going to be as high with me because that's just not my gift. But I'm still called to share the gospel. I'm still called to be hospitable. You enter my house, we may not have a full spread banquet, but we're still going to eat somehow, some way. But I guarantee you, all of us working together with our gifts, we all serve the church in that way because we go back to what our calling is. And how we go back to our calling is we just ask the Lord, what's my calling, Lord? What do you call me to do with my life? How you've equipped me, you know? It's best to serve the Lord with what you got, you know? And that's okay. And it glorifies the Lord. So, in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Now, that's the first time we find the word Christians. Uh, When we look at the word Christians here in Uh, This verse, we wonder, why are they first called Christians in Antioch? Why aren't they called Christians in Jerusalem? Why aren't they called Christians in Samaria? And why aren't they called Christians in Caesarea? The reason I believe is that contextually, there are a couple arguments. One is, they were first called Christians because they were called little Christs. And, uh, you know, the people, the Greek-speaking um, individuals around a community around the Christians, they it was sort of a mockery term, sort of to make fun of them. 
uh, the little Christ serpent there. And there are other, there's another theory that says that uh, they were little Christ, or they were called Christians because uh, it was the only other term they could figure out, identifying with Christ, and then saying, oh, well, they're Christians. And so I believe it's just a little bit beyond that last one I just mentioned. I believe that they were called Christians, if looking at the word a little more in depth this week, in that they were identifying themselves with Jesus Christ. But it wasn't that I identify myself with um, this candidate, political candidate. Like, for instance, I identify myself with Barack Obama, President Barack Obama, or I identify myself with Senator McCain or, or Senator um, Charles Schumer, or I identify myself with Presidenta Gioma. It's not that. It's not that case at all. It's identifying yourself with Christ and with what that means for all of life. So these Christians were identifying themselves with Jesus, but everything that they did identified with Jesus as well. That makes sense. So, for instance, if they did business, it identified it with Christ. If they parented, it identified with Jesus. If they loved another neighbor, it identified with Christ. It didn't identify with Caesar. It didn't identify with other pagan, Roman, pagan religions. It identified with Jesus. And so if you say, I'm a Christian, the, the goes back to the doctrine of what we call the union with Christ. If you're a Christian, you're unified with Jesus, with God. And so to say, I'm a Christian, everything that you do and everything that you say needs to identify with Jesus Christ. Because that's the idea behind saying, I'm a Christian. Is you're identifying everything about your life with Christ. Not with something else, not with the world. And so that should go well into how we act and what we say. Some people say, well, these words aren't that big of a deal. If it doesn't identify with Jesus, then it's identifying with something else. If what you're doing doesn't identify with Christ, then what is it identifying with? What is it associated with? And so that's the idea behind being called a Christian. Is that one, we're unified with Christ. We're unified with God. And the second part is, everything that we do is unified with God. Associated with Jesus. And who Jesus is. And what Jesus did. So this last thing here is that the Gentile mission to the Gentiles, it's it's strengthened. But then it's authenticated. It's authenticated and confirmed. Because let's look at 27 through 30. And now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. And one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be great famine over all the world. And this took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. So there's a lot of things here that we need to look at. First thing is this. And then seeing how the gospel mission to the Gentiles is being confirmed here by this church. is It goes back to what Jesus said. They will know you are my disciples by your love for one another. This is being confirmed right here by our very own eyes. One is, these are, are non uh, circum, or these are non-circumcised Christians who are caring for, reaching out to circumcised Jews. 
And so what we're seeing here is a great famine. When it says over all the world, it didn't mean literally like all the way to India, to, uh, to Spain. It meant just in the Judea region right there, in all the Roman Judea region right there, we're seeing a great famine. And during Claudius, the disciples determined in Antioch, everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so by the elders, by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. I think that what Saul realized in his mind was this, is that somehow, some way, we've got to be able to help the Jewish circumcised party Christians understand that those traditions don't matter anymore in the gospel. And the physical and spiritual blessings that were withheld to the Gentiles, the Gentiles no longer need to do the same back to the Jews. So because of that, we see two things. One is, the disciples give according to their ability. So if you only had $10 to give, you only gave $10. If you had $100, you gave $100. If you had $1,000, you gave $1,000. Each gave according to their ability. But all went together and was sent by Barnabas and Saul to the elders in the church of Jerusalem. But what did this show? This showed one, it showed unity. Unity between Jews and Gentiles. It doesn't matter anymore, Jews, if you withheld spiritual blessings from us for so long. We're not going to do the same back because the wall of hostility, as Ephesians talks about, chapter 2, has been broken down by the gospel, by Jesus Christ and what he's done. The second thing is, is that we see the elders in Jerusalem. We see the first sign of what we're called uh, in Greek, presbyteros. Presbyteras uh, is what the word is, but we see elders, pastors, shepherds. We see the first sign of real leadership taking place. And it just confirms in First Peter chapter 5 what an elder is supposed to be. A shepherd of the flock of God. So we're seeing elders, shepherds, taking place in the life of the local church. Uh, this also gives a uh, some evidence, a beginning evidence for the life of a plurality of leadership, of pastors. So there's not just one pastor doing it all in the church. There's a multitude of pastors. Paul will later tell Timothy, I ask you to appoint elders in each congregation. Why would he say elders instead of just a elder? A pastor is because Paul even believed that it was necessary that there be a multitude of leadership, multitude of pastors and elders to serve in each church for the functioning of the body because each elder, each pastor also has varying gifts. So we see here two things, unity of the body and the gift going to the elders first through the hands of Saul and Barnabas. But the caring for the poor during this great famine. In Galatians 2, uh, verse 10, Paul talked about greatly... um, Uh, I would say this is right before Acts 15, but Paul talked a lot about his desire to care for the poor. And in verse 10, it says, Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. And as we seek the Lord uh, together as the body of Christ, we need to remember the... This great symbol of solidarity, what we call solidarity, but unification in Jesus. That we care for those who are poor, and we care for those who are rich. How do we care for those who are poor? We help them financially by providing relief, 
but we also provide relief by helping them help uh, get their feet off the ground to be able to sustain themselves and to have upward mobility. How do we care for the rich? We help them see their need for Jesus more than money so that they too will give to the poor within the body so as to confirm the uh, the saying that Jesus, that what Jesus had said in that they will know you are my disciples for your love for one another, that we be one in Christ, that we serve one another with our gifts, and that we serve one another with uh, financially with what we have. And so that's mainly on this on this theme of the gospel mission going to the Gentiles that we're seeing the church of Antioch start from immature believers, young babies in the faith, to now becoming strong disciples of Jesus Christ by the hands of the Holy Spirit. That's all we can say is the power of the Holy Spirit is helping these young believers in Antioch understand and know the gospel, understand and know the power of the message of Christ and what He's done, and through the power of the Holy Spirit transform over a whole year's time and see people become one in Jesus through their authenticated work and them giving of themselves and their resources for gospel mission. Uh, a couple things that we can apply uh, to our lives right now just today and through this message. One is that we see how the power of the gospel has transformed individuals over a whole year's time. You have to understand that the gospel, that discipleship, it's not a sprint. It's a marathon. You aren't going to use all of your energy at the very beginning, and you're only going to spend four or five years, God willing, if you become a Christian at a young age. Uh, but you're not going to spend the first four or five years, and that's it. That's the Christian life. It's, it's a long, long race. It's a long race, as Paul talks about, that we need to run. And just to think about over a year's time. Last year, where were you? Where were you in your walk with Jesus Christ? Where were you at? That today you can say, I'm a lot further along than I was last year. That I've moved along. That I've grown in my faith. That I've, I understand more about who Jesus is. I understand more of why God saved me. I understand more of how I can grow in my faith. Yeah, there's room for growth and we, can, we need to look at that and we need to continue to dwell on that. Because the next year we want to say the same thing. But think about a year ago. Where were you at? Where you at today where you were at last year? I know for me, I can say, by His grace, I'm grown tremendously. And I thank the Lord for that. That He's refined me. But we have to remember, in our discipleship, in our evangelism, that it's, a, it's not a sprint. It's not a one-time thing. It's by the power of the Spirit that God changes according to His timetable. But we'd be okay with long timetables. We'd be okay with long years or long months or long amount of weeks. Because that's what God wants us to do. He wants us to plow away faithfully, to work hard faithfully over a long period of time. I've been sharing the gospel with a guy for one year and six months. And he still has not confessed Jesus Christ is the Son of the living God. And I'm amazed. But this is God's timetable. And I have to continue to be faithful to plow away. It's the same thing with the discipleship. Looking at what you want to see in five to ten years, not just six months. Because that's what we want to do. We want to grow together, but we want to grow over a long period of time, being committed 
dedicated to what God wants to do in our lives. And that's it. It's not a sprint. It's a marathon. And the church of Antioch, they had the right route set down. They were exhorted by Barnabas to do what? To remain faithful and with steadfast purpose. So are you being faithful with steadfast purpose? What's your steadfast purpose? To know God and to make Him known. Remain faithful. Are you being faithful so that the gospel mission can go forward to the ends of the earth? I was talking to Bob this morning. We talked about uh, the spiritual, what we call the spiritual disciplines of the Christian life. Praying every day. Reading God's word. Um, meditating. Staying silent so that you can uh, really listen to what God is trying to say. Sharing your faith. Knowing God's word. Discipling other people. Um, listening. Reading. Those kinds of things that really make a strong Christian spiritually. And I said, you know... I really think about it, and I think the gospel going to the nations depends on your spiritual maturity and you growing in the faith. Why? Because if you're not growing, you're not able to encourage the person next to you. And if you're not encouraging the next person next to you, they're not being spurred on in their faith. And they're not going to maybe share their faith with somebody else. And that in turn will affect all the other things. Now, God is in control. He knows. He's going to take care of it in His own time, in His own plan, His own will. But he wants us to participate in his mission. This is God's mission. And he wants us to be a part of it. And how we become a part of it, it begins with the small things. That we consider small at least. But they're huge in God's eyes. Why are they huge in God's eyes? Because it's communing with God. It's identifying with Jesus. It's identifying and associating every aspect of our lives with the gospel. And so... That's what will transform us. That's what will make us deeper Christians in the gospel message. So, let's do that.